Well, good morning, Christ City. Let me invite you to stand with me as we read our final text, concluding our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew writes in Matthew 7, 28 and 8, verse 1. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Remaining standing, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, like the crowds, are coming down from the mountain of your revelation today. And we know the truth of how we have received your word will be shown in how we live. By your Spirit, then, Lord, may your word find good soil in us, wherein we can produce good fruit with our lives. Amen. Well, have you ever been hit in the head before? Have you been hit in the head before? I have, uh, if you can't tell, many of times I've been hit in the head. And one of the hallmarks of getting hit in the head is shortly afterwards trying to piece together what has just happened. Uh, where am I? What hit me? How did I get here? That kind of thing. And, and how will I respond? If you were attacked, will you attack back? Will you run? What will you do? Getting hit in the head and trying to decide on how you will respond uh, is, I think, an appropriate illustration of what is happening in our text today. Think of the entire sermon thus far as this tremendous force. And it's not hard to do. Uh, for, for decades now, centuries, 2,000 years later, the sermon is astonishingly provocative, astonishingly powerful. And now, Jesus concludes with yet another exhortation to do what he says, to obey him. And we can read in our text today that the sermon hits the crowd like a force, hits the crowd with, with power. Remember, it's a diverse crowd. In the crowd are both the looky-loos and the deeply committed. And today we read specifically our crowd responds in astonishment, in astonishment. This word astonishment in the original language is a word that carries with it the force of being struck by or being hit by something. They have been, so to speak, hit in the head. And whether you're a Christian or not, however you come to this video, I think we would all agree that nothing hits us in the head, metaphorically speaking, quite like God speaking to us quite like the voice of divine revelation. If anything is going to stop us in our track, if anything is going to cause us to have big, wide eyes, it's God speaking to us. Indeed, the scriptures tell a number of stories of people stopping in their tracks, being hit in the head, so to speak, because God has revealed himself to them. See, let me explain what's going on in our text today. As we look at Matthew's gospel, five times, Five times we read of something like this happening. Five times we read something to the effect of, and when Jesus finished these sayings, or, and when Jesus had finished these parables, or, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. And each of these five instances are all working together to serve one purpose, to tell us, to tell the reader, you and I today, that what we've just heard is God himself speaking to us. What we've just heard is divine revelation. And if you were to ask 
Matthew's earliest readers, what they thought of when they thought of divine revelation, they would have all likely immediately thought of another mountain, another mountain of revelation, Mount Sinai. Today, as we conclude our series in the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying and what our response should be by contrasting two mountains. Two mountains. That's our whole outline today. Mount Sinai, where Israel through Moses receives the law, and the mountain now of Jesus' sermon. Today we're going to contrast two major mountaintop moments where God speaks in the Bible and how through one of those moments we are empowered to respond as never before. And so first, first, Mount Sinai. If you're new to the Bible, Mount Sinai likely doesn't mean anything to you, but it's at Mount Sinai where we find God giving his law to his people. And he does that through his servant Moses. Uh, Fresh out of Egyptian uh, slavery, God's people are gathered around this mountain and they're eager to find out what's next. What's next for us? So Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and receives the law, receives revelation. See, the law becomes the foundation by which God's people are not only themselves blessed, but the way in which they are to be a blessing to the surrounding nations. They are to model this new humanity. Indeed, they're to do this, as Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 tells us, as God's treasured possession. It's a beautiful picture. And it's Moses' job as the intermediary to bring the law to the people. We enter the story at Exodus 19, verses 7 to 9, where we read this. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Revelation comes. God speaks. And God's people promise to obey. But if we keep on reading, we find that there is, if you will, a catch to this revelation. There's a fence around this revelation. God's people are not to touch the holy mountain. Further, God's people are not to touch Moses. Well, if you know the story and how it progresses, The promise that Israel makes to obey God's commands lasts about 12 chapters. About 12 chapters. 12 chapters before they are worshiping another God that they've made with their own hands. And this idolatry only serves to foreshadow their eventual demise into exile because they ultimately rebel and disobey God. See, Mount Sinai, this other mountain, is the story of God's good revelation coming to a people who promise to obey, yet, yet, a people who ultimately can't come near and eventually turn to disobedience. That's the story of Mount Sinai. Let's turn now and contrast that with the mountain on which Jesus gives his sermon. It's a mountain, really, that you and I have been living on for the past year. It's the mountain we find between Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. It's where we've been. It's been our home each Sunday, week in and week out. See, like Sinai, the the Sermon on the Mount is also a mountain of God's revelation. 
Jesus isn't sitting on the mountain because he likes the view. No, he has a point that he wants to make here. As we saw in our very first sermon, when Matthew wrote, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, we noted that Matthew isn't saying that because he's just a good narrator. No, Matthew is a theologian. He's making a theological point about who Jesus is. Jesus, friends, is the truer and better Moses who goes up on this mountain and gives God's people revelation perfectly. Indeed, he himself is the fulfillment of this revelation. He himself can do that as God. As God. See, God, in our text, in our series, once again speaks. The response, however, is different. And, and it makes sense. The Sinai, rightfully, w- w- was terrifying. And the author of Hebrews, talking about the Sinai experience, talks about it like this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's how the Sinai experience was understood by God's people in the first century. This terrifying experience of revelation where they could not touch, where they could not go near. If they touched, they die. It was frightening, scary, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It's a terrifying experience. But contrast the Sinai experience with what happens immediately next in Matthew's gospel. It's amazing. Sinai is this terrifying thing. Don't touch. And yet immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, look at what Matthew, our gospel writer, pens. He says this, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. That's Jesus. And behold, a leper came to him, to Jesus, and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And look at what Matthew says. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's just chance that Matthew, perhaps with Sinai in mind, makes it explicit that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched a person who under Sinai's revelation had been deemed unclean, not part of the community. Jesus, the truer and better Moses, God himself, goes out and brings healing and revelation. Again, Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount do not tell us about two different gods. We should not make that mistake. It does not tell us about two different dispositions that God has towards humanity. No, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is fulfilling what the law, what Sinai was always pointing to. Indeed, he said that already in the sermon. Here, where we've been for the past year, perfectly is God's invitation to humanity. God's invitation to all of those who would receive him. It's an invitation not through Moses. It's an invitation not even through the scribes who refer to Moses. No, God himself comes to us in the person of Jesus, speaks to us, and receives all those who come to him. Sinai. Sinai was about showing Israel 
how to be God's true humanity. But despite their promise to obey, despite their best effort, Israel ultimately failed. But in the Sermon on the Mount, true humanity, capital T, true humanity, comes to us. In Jesus, we see humanity perfected. And what's more, when we are joined to Jesus by faith and his life, his death, his resurrection, when we are joined to Jesus by faith, that new humanity is birthed in us. Indeed, we can say that we are new creations in Christ. So some of us, I know this, are descending this mountain, walking down this mountain as new creations. Maybe you sat down on this mountain, pulled up a chair, grabbed a a shady spot, not sure about who Jesus was, not sure about his teaching. The unspeakable power of the Sermon on the Mount is that you can get up from that shady spot You can get up out of that chair a completely new person. A new person. As our brother Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the only question that remains at this point in the series is will you receive and obey Jesus' teaching? You know, our text tells us, our text tells us that as Jesus descended the mountain, great crowds followed him. And I'm, I'm an optimist, I think. And I'm tempted to think that maybe these great crowds all really believed in Jesus, all trusted Jesus. We'll see these great crowds maybe one day in heaven. But before we get overly excited, thinking Jesus left the mountainside with a whole bunch of new, deeply committed disciples, the reality probably is likely a lot less exciting. As I said earlier, each time we read something to the effect of, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, each time we read something to that effect in Matthew's gospel, it not only indicates divine revelation, but with divine revelation, always comes divine separation. Let me say that again. With divine revelation, there is always divine separation. See, divine revelation, we've seen this, will force you down one of two roads. Divine revelation will force you to produce fruit as one of two trees. Divine revelation will force you to choose, are you going to build your life on the rock or the sand? Divine revelation always comes with it. Divine separation. And while today, while in this moment, there is a great crowd following Jesus, the rest of Matthew's gospel isn't as rosy, isn't as optimistic. In fact, if we go to Matthew 13, if we go to Matthew 13 and we we see there Jesus speaking to the crowds in parables, We find the same word for astonishment there. They're again struck by Jesus' teaching. They've again been hit by Jesus' teaching. Except this time, their astonishment comes with it a certain skepticism. A skepticism that Matthew 13 tells us ultimately leads to their unbelief. When contrasted with Sinai, 
the glorious invitation given on the mount of Jesus' sermon becomes clear. But as you and I well know, this invitation is not received by all, is not welcomed by all. So here's how we're going to end. Here's how we're going to end, not just our sermon today, but conclude our entire series. I think it is fitting to end with a parable that gets at the heart of what's happening when people receive or refuse the word of God. When Jesus' teaching causes divine separation. I'm going to read to you the parable of the sower found also in Matthew 13. And then I'm going to ask us to reflect with a set of questions. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to stand now. Wherever you are, stand. And we're going to read Matthew 13, verses 1 to 9. Skip over some verses and then read verses 18 to 23. So if you have your Bible in hand, Stand with me, and we're going to read Matthew 13, starting at verse 1. There we read this. Jesus is teaching, and he says this. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, Some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Still other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Then Jesus says, He who has ears... Let him hear. Let's keep on reading, beginning at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When everyone hears the words, sorry, when anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Friends, we have one very simple question before us as we conclude the series. How will you come down from this mountain? How will you come down from this mountain? Has Satan blinded you to the radical message of the kingdom of God? My prayer today is that you would see that we've left Sinai and come someplace more glorious. And the author of Hebrews continues to write in that passage you looked at earlier. He says this about where we're at now, Mount Zion. He says this, listen to this, friends. You and I have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do, do you know do you know what Jesus has done for you? Do you know the transfer that has occurred, taking you out of darkness, bringing you into his glorious light? Friends, I pray that the spirit of this world would no longer blind you, that you would come to hear and understand. Or, or, or have tribulation, have trials exposed your shallow roots? Maybe you once joyously, at some point of your life, once joyously followed and obeyed Jesus, but then something hard happened. COVID-19 happened. And your foundation of sand has been exposed. Last week you heard that. He showed us that. Friends, repent. Trust in Jesus. See, Jesus does the hard and difficult work of exposing us now so that on the last day we will not be exposed then. Or have you got choked out by the cares of this world? In your effort to be someone, do something, you've lost the plot. For you, life is a game of getting ahead, and you've been deceived. Did we not also hear on the mountain, you cannot serve both God and mammon? You cannot serve both God and money, God and stuff, God and things? Friends, how will you come down from the mountain? Will you come down from the mountain? There's a third option or a fourth option here. By the grace of God, having both heard and understood. heard and understood in such a way that your life personally, your life with the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and your life to the watching world, with the watching world, will be forever changed, will never be the same. Friends, we all, all of us, must come down from the mountain of God's revelation. The question is, how? Blessed, flourishing, happy is the man who hears God's word and keeps it. Let me pray. Father, we like Isaiah, we come before you and having perceived a glimpse of your holiness, we fall down on our faces and cry out, we are not worthy, and you are holy, and we ought to die. And yet, you speak to us in the person and work of Jesus, and you reach out and you touch us, and where we expect death, where we expect destruction, we instead find healing and life. Jesus, we never want to move beyond you. We never want to move past you. Indeed, we want to give our lives to know and understand you and enjoy you more. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.